Welcome to the Orion X Download. This is a podcast where we discuss big ideas and big trends in high technology. Hello and welcome to this new edition of the Orion X Download. I'm Dan Olds, and we have the rest of the Orion X Research Department with us. That includes Shaheen Khan. How you doing, Shaheen? All right. Thank you, Dano. Good. And Steve Perrineau. Hello, Dan. How are you? We've got a couple of exciting topics today. We're going to take a look at what has happened in the year of both crypto and along the way, take a little glimpse at whether some of our predictions panned out and take a look at where the markets are now. Shall we go ahead and start with crypto? Sure, Dan. Okay, and I believe that that's your particular bailiwick, Steve, if you want to start us out. Okay, be happy to. And the first thing I want to do is point people to the orionx.net slash research page, where they can freely download our cryptocurrency outlook 2019, still early days. And that was put together in March of this year. So one of the things we're going to do is look at uh, how things have progressed since then and whether we're still on track. I think looking at the highest level, we've seen Bitcoin consolidate its position in the cryptocurrency market. And currently, 68% of all market cap is actually in Bitcoin itself. And if you look at the coins that are above a billion dollars individually market cap, there are only nine others. But this is in a universe with almost 5,000 cryptocurrencies, according to coin market cap, and a very active set of developments in cryptocurrencies and in blockchain. One of the things that we talked about in this report for March in our Cryptocurrency Outlook 2019 was the development of distributed applications, better known as dApps. We had seen a very large run-up in 2017 with Ethereum as a platform for initial coin offerings and then also as a platform for smart contracts. And then we've seen the development of these distributed applications or dApps in those environments. And we were looking for a lot of growth there, but we haven't seen that much. So that's been an area with a little bit of disappointment. I did a check just today on what we have, there are about 3,200 dApps that have been developed, according to to one site, Mm stateofthedapps.com. All but 500 of these are built on Ethereum, but there are a number of other platforms like EOS, Steam, and Neo. Mm -hmm. The user level, though, is still relatively modest. A total on a given day of about uh, 94,000 users and a few million dollars of transaction volume going through that, with the biggest categories being gaming, property exchanges, finance, and security. Hmm. The other thing that's happened this year is that Ethereum has sort of had a few hiccups, but they did manage to roll out three different updates of their software release. But they have found that getting to the proof of stake is taking a lot longer. Originally, it should have happened probably last year. And now it looks like it's not going to happen for two more years. Now, let me ask you a dumb question. What do you mean by proof of stake? I'm familiar with proof of work. Think of it as uh, ownership and a share of something. Ah, okay. So you may purchase some Ethereum and then you pledge it into the system. And it may be held in a repository. And as long as it's in that repository, then you have voting rights, just like you have voting rights with shares of stock. So it's an alternative consensus algorithm to 
proof of work, which of course is a mining algorithm. Gotcha. Okay. Now in the Bitcoin world, one of the typical concerns about Bitcoin was, can it support high transaction volumes? And the biggest development there has been with second layer and especially lightning. And what that allows is microtransactions. Currently, the state of the lightning network, it is it has 11,000 nodes and there are 35,000 channels are open. The total amount of Bitcoin that's sort of stuffed into these channels today is a little bit less than a thousand. But you actually don't need huge amounts of Bitcoin stored in the channels if you're mainly building something that's going to be used for small transactions like coffee or even transactions as small as a, a single sat, where a sat is 100 millionth of a full Bitcoin. So it's it's incredibly scalable, potentially, but the network needs to grow a lot. Mm-hmm. There are some other second layer and side chain solutions. Uh, Liquid is one in the Bitcoin world. And we expect to see these continuing to develop over time. And we're seeing some big players come into Lightning, including Amazon, Microsoft, and Akamai, Mm. who are potentially going to become players. Uh, They've not necessarily made announcements, but uh, Lightning has the potential to really even outperform Visa and MasterCard in terms of both transaction fees and scaling for large numbers of transactions. That would be a game changer. Yeah. Right. Another big development is Schnorr signatures, and these will improve security and also are important building block for multi-signature and smart contract capability. So that's proceeding pretty good pace. Early in the year, we had expected to see more and more action around security tokens. One of the promising areas for security tokens is to tokenize real estate. Mm-hmm. But it could be any sort of real asset or commodity. And there have been several done and into the tens of millions and even hundreds of millions, at least in terms of announcements. There's been a hotel in Aspen, Colorado that's already been tokenized. And then there's supposedly an SEC compliant token that was launched uh, late last year. And we're going to see more and more of this, but it's it's not happening all at once, but gradually it, it's being developed. Probably the biggest thing that happened during the year is growth in stable tokens. And obviously the most important of those that was announced but is still not functional is Libra from Facebook. Mm. A lot of controversy around that. That produced an unbelievable storm of pushback from governments in the U.S., in Europe, and really around the world. But it also caused them to speed up their own plans especially for central bank digital currencies. So we're seeing a lot of research and investigation in terms of major countries. The one that seems to be in front is China, and we expect China to roll out a central bank digital one sometime next year. Could be as early as the first half of the year. Libra, they are on a schedule for June. Whether they'll reach that or not, they've tried to be more accommodating. There have been concerns from the governments around the currency basket approach, but they've just been very, very deep concerns around the scale of what they're able to do. And for smaller countries, they could be quite disruptive to management of the money supply. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. How do you think this is going to come out if you had to look into your crystal ball? I think Facebook has made noises and Libra have made noises about backing away from the currency basket. So we may see them start out with individual fiat currency tied versions of Libra, multiple versions by country. And they're just going to have to go through the regulatory hoops 
and they're going to have to show that they're really not a threat, that they're tied to that particular national fiat currency and position themselves like a, a money market fund. And one of the important things that I also saw is that they're pulling away from the Libra investment token. Oh. You may recall they put together an association with initially about 20 members, mm -hmm. although a few have dropped out. Visa's dropped out. PayPal's dropped out. They did have their original meeting and they've started putting their charter together. But they intended to have two token classes, one for the masses and another just for the association. And the idea behind that was that all of the dividends that would be collected from the fiat currency that they would pool and keep as reserve to Libra, all those dividends would accrue to this special Libra investment token. Interesting. But it looks like they may be prepared to drop away from that. Hmm. That's interesting. I think the flexibility that they're showing to me is expected because I always thought that they're playing the long game anyway. Hmm. They're certainly playing the long game. Exactly what they have in mind, you know, and how they want to tie that back to the Facebook platform itself and their other products is not entirely clear. And well, you know, I always thought that the fundamental motivation is the transfer of value and that all these big companies are in the business of transferring some sort of value. And as we move more and more towards a digital economy, that value is in a digital product. And therefore, they are increasingly motivated to become banks on their own right. And that's what we're observing. It's funny. It kind of reminds me of the saying in business that everything eventually gets down to being a financial service. That's right. And I think transfer of value is really where it comes from. Yeah. When you have a certain amount of scale, you're going to become a financial service, whether you like it or not. That's right. Either financing your customers or financing others or transferring, as you say. You also realize that transfer of value is a lucrative business and that you're handing over a lot of margin to others to do it. And if you do have the wherewithal, why not do it yourself? Well, it's true. It's kind of like Walmart's banking services, for instance. You get to be a big enough company with enough cash, you've got to get a return on that somehow. That's right. And we've seen big companies issue their own credit card. Mm -hmm. And I think all of that is towards the same goal. So what else in the crypto world, doctor? Well, apropos what has just been discussed, all of this is forcing the banks, at least the large banks, to plan to do things on their own as well. Many of them have allowed Ripple to come in and do projects for them, but I don't think they want to be dependent on Ripple's crypto XRP. So the largest ones are starting to do their own national fiat-oriented tokens, names like JP Morgan, Citibank, and some big names in Japan, Mizuho Bank, Mitsubishi. Mm -hmm. Especially and with I, the Olympics coming up. Exactly. They had that as a target since Tokyo has the Olympics and Japan as a whole next year. But they also have to be careful because they have to position themselves carefully with what their central banks are now looking at doing. There's just been a paper issued, a research study out of the ECB, the European Central Bank. Federal Reserve is, is studying this, although they don't seem to be moving that quickly, but they're certainly studying it. And mm. so we are going to see central banks beyond China starting to issue fiat-based central bank digital currencies. And then the banks will have to be their partner somehow in distributing those to retail customers. Beyond that, since Dan mentioned Walmart, is the whole topic of enterprise blockchains and distributed ledger technology. IBM has been the biggest name in this. Microsoft, Oracle, and Fujitsu are playing. We've got Hyperledger as an open source effort that uh, many of these big companies have adopted, and they've got 
all the big names in technology as part of their grouping, but also other large companies like Airbus, American Express, Daimler. And this is finding traction, especially in supply chain and logistics applications and provenance. For example, Walmart has a project for tracking food, tracing food and its Mm -hmm. provenance so Mm -hmm. that uh, food safety, et cetera, can be tracked. They have another one around the drug supply chain since Walmart is becoming a uh, pharmaceutical supplier. And we see others, ones like decentralized identity, smart contracts, and, and those areas. But it looks like the supply chain is especially the sweet spot for this distributed ledger technology. Well, we did a little bit of research on when to use or when not to use blockchain. And certainly one natural application is when you're naturally decentralized and naturally scaled. And if you have stuff all over the world or all over the country and different trucks in in motion and you want to keep track of it, then blockchain lends itself to that. Absolutely. So these are typically permission blockchains, but they're permissioned across multiple companies and organizations and even divisions within a single company. The other thing we're seeing that's related is the blockchain as a service space. So Amazon, Microsoft, Azure, Alibaba, Baidu are some important names there. Now, how does that work? Well, these are just basically development platforms. Ah, okay. Developer tools for other companies to come in and use a a cloud-based blockchain as a service platform to develop their particular offerings. So they're providing the, the tools that allow those applications to be developed. Cryptocurrency phones are an interesting area. HTC has introduced a phone out of Taiwan, and they just introduced a cheaper model in October for $250, and it can run a full Bitcoin node on the phone, which is uh, pretty interesting. Samsung has also been active in the space, and they have a phone out now, S10, Galaxy S10, that supports Bitcoin, Ethereum, and uh, another token that's big in Korea and has some DAP support. Apple hasn't done it yet, but they have in their iOS 13 included a crypto developer toolkit. So they're thinking about it. Interesting. Of course, they also just had their own credit card. So they too are starting to move towards becoming a bank. Seems to be what all the cool kids are doing. (laughs) That's right. That's right. If If you have the muscle, you pursue it. Yeah. So we touched on Facebook. Another area is social media and is there a new generation of social media that can be built around blockchains some would call this a way to realize web 3.0 or certain aspects of of web 3.0 but basically to have decentralized social media solutions and one of the things that blockchain can do is to allow people to retain control of their private data potentially on some future or next generation version of social media platforms. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. And we're also seeing existing social media platforms look at introducing cryptos. Uh, There was an announcement from Line. Line is the biggest one for messaging in Japan, Taiwan, and Thailand. Mm -hmm. There's something planned for the Telegram community. And obviously, we've got the the Libra and Facebook. So what do people think? Are we going to move to a world of decentralized social media where all your data, you can keep ownership? Boy, then you're going to have to start paying for social media. Well, not if you're generating value by participating. So then the question becomes how that value is distributed between those who generate it and those who realize it. True, but it's a big number to put together a social network as rich as Facebook, for instance. Yes, And it's kind of hard 
to speculate if suddenly they had to pay people to use their data, how this would look. That's right. If they could survive. Yeah. Well, it would be a revenue sharing model. And initially they would share only a very small portion, you know, unless they yes. came under severe competitive pressure, but they would do that as a, a defensive posture. They've got obviously a very large mode and first mover advantage, but the business model does exist. Medium is an example of that, although it is not a decentralized social media platform. Their business model says that you pay a subscription fee for access to certain articles, and then authors of those articles get paid in proportion to the readership. So the model is can be established. And there are a couple of social media services that are subscription-based. Yeah, Steemit is actually another blogging platform that actually is based decentralized. They've just been acquired. Okay, we're probably towards the end of the time on cryptocurrency, unless you gentlemen have some questions. No, great stuff. Well, maybe as a segue into the quantum part, we can talk about the cryptology part of cryptocurrency. And from what I see, everything in the crypto world continues to hinge on the Shaw cryptographic algorithm, SHA-256. That continues to be the case. Yes. For mining, there are different algorithms, but the most popular is the SHA-256. It's used by Bitcoin and some of the Bitcoin forks and some others. Mm -hmm. The most vulnerable area, though, to quantum cryptography or quantum cracking of cryptographic codes is actually with the wallets. And the reason is that the wallets use the same cryptographic security that's used for your bank account, which typically might be something like SHA-256, but typically is based on something like RSA with that many bits in mm -hmm. the code or elliptic curve cryptography. And those are potentially subject to being cracked by Shor's algorithm. And there's another algorithm, Grover's algorithm, that could be run on quantum computers of the future. But these quantum computers would have to have hundreds of thousands and maybe more than a million qubits that would all remain coherent for a long enough time to crack a particular wallet or a particular address, private key on the blockchain. What they would not be able to do is crack the mining process itself. And it right. appears like we're a decade away at least because of the high qubit count that's yeah. required. Definitely the walk away is that nothing to worry about yet. Let's hope so. There are people that are working on quantum secure wallets. So there are people worrying about it. And those are simply different kinds of cryptography that don't immediately hinge on prime factorization. That's right. There are a whole set of quantum secure algorithms that are being developed by the community. And some of these have gotten approval from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. There's a lot of activity. Yeah, in fact, the research I was doing, quantum-safe cryptography is not new. It's been happening for over a decade, maybe even more, with the scientific papers and the research that has been going. And those are all documented. There's an entire book on it that was produced some years ago. So the people who've been thinking about it have been thinking about it for a while is the point. Absolutely. Maybe I can take this as a way of giving you a little overall state of the market for quantum computing. Sound okay? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right. So fundamentally, quantum computing is a little bit behind blockchain and cryptocurrency in terms of its maturity. It's still early days 
in quantum computing. There's still a lot of unpredictability, a lot of different technologies being pursued at the same time. There's no guaranteed ROI in many of those places, but it continues to look really promising. So somebody put it really succinctly when they said quantum computing is simultaneously overhyped and underestimated. So I think that's really good. So overall, we are moving from fundamental research, math, computer science, physics, science towards more productization. The current state of the market is affectionately called NISQ, N-I-S-Q, and that stands for Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum Computing. Noisy because, as we'll talk in a bit, coherence with these qubits is pretty fundamental to how efficiently algorithms run. Intermediate scale, because we haven't quite managed to get to full scale, but we're also past the early stages of just having a couple of handful of qubits working together. And of course, quantum computing, because that's what we're pursuing. Now, the buzzwords of quantum computing right now, one of them, of course, is quantum supremacy. That has been in the news recently in the past couple of months when the quantum computing research group at Google published a very nice paper basically demonstrating quantum supremacy, albeit for a relatively simple algorithm. Now, that simple algorithm is essentially random number generation, which turns out is actually pretty important. It is actually important to have provably random numbers for certain simulations and activities. On the other hand, it's a kernel. It's not a real app. But anyway, it was demonstrated and it's a good milestone. The second one is quantum safe cryptography that we just talked about because there's a lot of worry that if uh, somebody can crack these codes it will be trouble. Assuming you can do this, you can go back and crack codes of data that may be years or decades old. So you can now go back and decrypt things that people did some years ago, thinking that it would never be cracked, and now you can. So this cryptography thing isn't just the data that you're producing now. It can actually apply to data that you produced in the past. And then another buzzword that actually didn't catch on much when it first came out, but it's still in there, is Y2Q, is how many years you've got before you get to quantum supremacy for a particular algorithm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yes. Now, yes. in terms of technologies, there have been two competing technologies categorically. One of them is quantum annealing, where you fundamentally are trying to optimize things through the annealing algorithms. And the second one is the gate model, where you're actually trying to take advantage of the infrastructure built for classical computing to implement quantum computing. The present horses, so to say, in that race are two approaches. One is trapped ion or trapped atom, and the other one is photonics. The advantage of photonics is that it doesn't need cryogenics. You don't really need superconducting. You could envision a day when your phone would be having some quantum computing capability. But typically, you do need refrigeration, and there are different approaches for refrigeration. But generally, we got the really big models and the small models, and some of those are advancing quite rapidly. A couple of other approaches that are emerging, and the most interesting one to me is a topological-based quantum computing an attempt to go around the error-correcting part of quantum computing by representing the quantum entanglement in terms of topologies that may be the same, even though they may get deformed. This is an example of if you look at a coffee mug, topologically, that's the same as a donut, even though it's got misshaped. So those errors can misshape it, but not change the topology of it. That's really interesting. So I mentioned 
decoherence and error correction, that continues to be a really big issue in quantum computing. In the classical world, we've got error correcting code. In a quantum world, we've got quantum error correction. So QEC is another acronym that you might see. All of that has led to new metrics on how you evaluate a quantum computer. And as Steve was mentioning, it's no longer just the number of qubits that you need because you may need a lot to get things done, even though in theory, you really shouldn't need more than 50 in practice suddenly you need 10,000. Why is that? Well, the reason why it's that is because it's not just the number of qubits, but the quality of those qubits. And that translates in the gate model to gate speed and gate fidelity. So how many qubits, how fast are they, and how fidelity applies to them. And that is leading to new metrics on how you evaluate a quantum computer. IBM has put forward one and some of the other vendors have put forward other metrics of how you evaluate quantum computers in a rough kind of back of the envelope sort of a way. That leads us to algorithms. Traditionally, you were focused on provable algorithms. The recent model is heuristics and that includes quantum inspired algorithms that are not quantum, but then you look at how a quantum computer might solve it and you say, hang on a second, I could do that with classical computing and actually be ahead of where I used to be. Dr. Steve mentioned Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithm. Those continue to be the ones that you hear a lot. And that leads into, so what is this good for? What are the apps? Yeah. So the apps are really, in my mind, are two fundamental categories. One is quantum science, that the whole problem itself is quantum mechanics. If you're solving quantum chemistry, well, it's already quantum. You're already describing those probability functions. One way you can think of quantum computing is probability functions that you can control. Because when you go to quantum state, it's all probability functions. And the second one is optimization. So what does that translate into? It translates into actually just optimization, traffic management and optimization, the traveling salesman, which is another rendition of the same problem. And I think that's where quantum annealing comes in for that optimization. You can now think about artificial intelligence and machine learning because fundamentally you're trying to look for an optimized state on a big surface. And again, it's more of an optimization problem in that sense rather than a bunch of matrix multiplies like you do in deep learning. So different algorithm towards the same end. Quantum chemistry we mentioned that leads into material science. It leads into pharmacology. And then of course, quantum communication. Communication has already been using some quantum modeling in the past. So it lends itself to that. And that's very interesting to obviously a lot of different applications, including classified world. And then of course, cybersecurity, as we mentioned, because of the whole prime factorization. So question, Shaheen, how are people going, developers going to learn how to, to program these systems? Because I think the approach to programming is said to be quite different. Yes, indeed. And in fact, as you mentioned, the whole workforce aspect of quantum computing is an issue. And if you are a government, for example, and you see this as a way of the future, you do need workforce that is trained for it and put policies in place that promote that. It's very interesting that when you look at quantum computing companies around the world, there are 90% PhDs in math and physics and computer science. Right now, you have to be highly specialized to really be in this field. And as time goes by, you want to expand that and make it easier. Now, towards that end for programming, there is a race going towards open source development environments 
that are available through the cloud that may or may not be backed up with an actual computer in the back end, but there are quantum simulators that do this. IBM had one, Rigetti has one, Microsoft has one, others have been working towards it. There's a lot of research collaboration between different vendors to try to promote that. QCWare is another company that is providing that kind of a development environment. So it is coming. And I think there's, at least for the gate model, there's a commonality that is forming where you could program and it would run on multiple backends depending on what is available. Microsoft Azure actually offers quantum computers in the back end, real ones and simulated ones. No kidding. Yeah, mm. Amazon just announced one that has the same capabilities, uh, probably a little bit less at the moment. IBM's quantum computer has been available through the cloud for probably a better part of the year, if not more than that. Google hasn't done that yet. They're still doing very targeted collaborations with universities, but it is really happening. Maybe this is a good segue into the whole market space for it. The main business justification for quantum computing right now, given that it's in such infancy, is really fear of missing out. It is just such an important technological thing happening that you don't want to be left behind. You want to have a seat at the table and that justifies your investment. That interest is worldwide. Besides obviously US, Europe, Japan, which you would expect to be there, there's a lot of activity in China. Right now, if you look at the number of research papers that are published, China is two or three X, the next player, which is the US. Now that's just sheer number of papers. It doesn't analyze just what those papers are covering, but it does show that there's a lot of investment in China. Canada continues to punch above its weight, just as it does in the AI world. Australia is strong and Singapore is doing work in this area as well. So it is global. But when you look at the number of companies that are doing quantum computing, either inside bigger companies or just smaller companies that are dedicated, the number is easily 100. Yeah. So for a market that doesn't really quite exist yet, well, there is a market that does exist because the investments are going towards that. Very good. Very good stuff, guys. Any other comments in here? We've kind of covered it all. We have, in fact, yeah. Maybe we can conclude and we can come back in a future episode and cover some of the other areas that we track. Very good. Uh, please let us know if you have any questions. We have contact details on our website. And I hope everybody out there, from all of us to all of you, has a great holiday. And we will talk to you soon. 